Welcome, everyone. I'm glad to see you all here. Just going to get ready. I'm going to invite you to uh, open your Bibles to 1 John, second chapter, verses 12 to 14. This is where we're going to be finding ourselves today. We're continuing in our expository series on 1 John. And uh, this is where we're at over the past two months. So I think this is the... It might be the ninth Sunday that we're speaking on this, uh, on this book. So I'm going to encourage you all to turn there. We'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll begin. So 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14. So it says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God remains in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that it brings. I pray that Um, We would learn from it today, and what you want us to see, we will see it, and our hearts would be open to it, and um, we would turn it into um, obedience and practice in what you've called us uh, to be as as your children and your sons and daughters. And so, Lord, I just pray for a gathering. I pray that, um, again, your word would speak to us and it would be active. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters, those who are here and those that couldn't make it. Lord, I pray that you would be with them as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So just to recap a bit of what we've seen so far in 1 John. Um, We've seen a lot of litmus tests concerning false doctrine and true faith. So John has been outlining some back-to-basics Christianity by providing contrasts and tests. In doing so, John outlines how to spot true faith in the shadows of false doctrine, and how to remain faithful to Christ by focusing on sound faith, obedience, and love. And now John also has done this to assure true believers at the time that they were in fact true believers. The false doctrines and false teachers had caused such division in the church that they had truly shaken those who remained faithful to the apostles' teachings. And therefore, it was important for John to give assurances about their faith to those who remain steadfast and obedient to Christ. And this is where our verses begin today. Now, before we dive completely in, I just want to give an overview of what we'll be looking at in case you haven't noticed. When, when we read the, the three verses all together, there are ser- there's a series of statements um, and several words that are repeated. Now, today we'll be zeroing in on the words children, young men, and fathers to show the stages of spiritual growth, and to also look at the truths which John attaches to these words in order to exemplify each stage. So before I tackle the text, I want to just talk about growth and development in general and give an example that many of us can relate to. One thing that always amazes me is when I pick up my phone and I look back on pictures and videos of my children. And for those of you with children, I'm sure you can completely relate. And for those of you without Even looking back on pictures of yourself or nieces and nephews, cousins, it's incredible to see the growth that occurs month after month, year after year. 
everything from the physical growth to the mental, developmental growth that occurs is nothing short of incredible. If I look at our youngest daughter, Camilla, and how just in the span of a few months she's gone from seeing her first words to piecing together sentences and expressing herself, you cannot help but be amazed by how incredible and beautiful natural growth is. We are witnessing her develop and become the little person who God has designed her to be right before our very eyes. And what is also quite amazing is that in 20 years from now, her physical body will stop growing, but she will continue to grow in wisdom for the rest of her life. The believer also goes through similar growth in their spiritual lives once the Lord calls them to faith. There's a reason why Christ refers to us being born again once we are adopted into his family. We go through the same cycle of growth in our new lives as Christians as we do naturally in our physical bodies. This process of spiritual growth is called sanctification. So I'm going to go through the definition in the, uh, in the Baptist Confession. It says, Those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces so that they practice true holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So as we see, it is the power of the Holy Spirit and his word that this process begins and continues throughout our lives as believers. This process is only perfected, as Philippians 1.6 would tell us, in the day of our Lord Christ Jesus. Now let's start looking at the text for the day. Verse 12 begins with a reference to little children. It says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now it is important to distinguish between the term little children used in verse 12 and the word children used in verse 13. So in the Greek, there are two different words. The term little children used in verse 12 is the word technion. Now, I don't speak Greek, okay? I did my research. Uh, there's a really, really good resource online called Blue Letter Bible that I would encourage you all to use if you do want to dissect scripture. It, it, it shows you the translation. It shows you a, a whole bunch of cross-references to each word, each verse. It's a beautiful resource. So this is where I'm getting my Greek from, just for those of you who may think that I speak Greek. But the word in verse 13 is different. It's paideon. So notice that there is a difference. Okay, so the word technion is used in the New Testament as a term which lovingly addresses disciples by their teachers. So little children is speaking to disciples of Christ, or in other words, believers. Little children are those whose sins have been forgiven. So who are those whose sins have been forgiven? Only those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in the light. First John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus does what? Cleanses us from all sin. And John 1.12 says, But as many has received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now I love how John adds in how our sins have been forgiven for his name's sake, or as the NESB puts it, on account of his name. Everything God has done, and as a result, everything that we do 
brings glory to his name. Our salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, for his name's sake. Forgiveness itself and divine rescue in Psalm 106, 6 to 8. Confession of sin, Psalm 25, 11. Walking in obedience and righteousness, Psalm 23, 3. Salvation itself and the good works which come as a result are all for his name's sake. And I want to look for, at Ephesians 2, 8 to, to 10. So all of this is to bring glory to his name and to highlight the grace that he has shown us. So Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that one of you, uh, none of you may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So to quickly recap, John's address in these three verses is for believers, and this is who John is referring to as little children. It's important to understand because you cannot grow spiritually and be sanctified if you are not first justified, right? If you are dead, you don't grow. And so growth is an evidence of life, as John MacArthur would put it. If you ever planted something and watched it grow, and then all of a sudden the growth stops, it can happen for several reasons, right? It usually is an indication that something is wrong, right? There's no space or there's sickness involved. I'm talking about a plant, but you can apply it to our spiritual walk as well. And here in Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, verses two to, uh, sorry, 3 to 23 in the parable of the sower, I'm not going to go through all of it, but it, Matthew, uh, sorry, Jesus shows us in this book, and uh, in verse 23, it says, but the one sown with seed on good soil, right? This is what grows. It's the one that is in good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understand it, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundred, some 60, and some 30 times as much. So, as believers, we can expect to hopefully experience three stages of spiritual growth, and we can expect to grow as well. So let's look at these stages. The first stage of spiritual growth John refers to is children. I've written to you children because you know the Father. So as I said before, the word child is paideon, a young child or an infant recently born. And a definition, again, given by John MacArthur for this stage would be basic awareness of God and their sinfulness, but who need to grow. And so to start... What, the question I want to pose is, what characterizes someone who knows the Father? So if we look at 1 John uh, 2, verse 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. And later on in John's epistle, in 1 John 5, 3, he tells us what it means to know the Father and to keep his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So to know him is to love him. It's to be in relationship with him. If you know him, you keep his commands. If you love him, you keep his commands. And so therefore, to know him is to love him, is to be in a relationship with him. And so it's, imp it's an important point that a spiritual child is still, as John has already established, a believer because one, their sins have been forgiven, and two, they have the indwelt Holy Spirit who will help them grow and who gives the knowledge of the Father. John 14, 17 says, The Helper is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he remains with you, 
and will be in you. Other places in Scripture also give us insight into what this first stage of spiritual growth typically looks like. And so in Matthew 18.3 and Luke 18.17, these are different uh, characterizations of what a spiritual child will look like. So Jesus says that one needs to become like a child and humble himself in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Matthew 18 uh, says, at, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him among them and said, truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever will humble himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To be humble is to hold oneself in low esteem. To humble oneself like a child is to be simple, helpless, and to have trusting dependence. And this is applicable to all believers. We must always be dependent upon our Heavenly Father in all elements of life. But this cannot be the only thing that defines our walk as believers. Paul gives us more insight into the characteristics of a spiritual child in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 9. When the church at Corinth began to become fragmented, because these spiritually young believers began to claim allegiance to leaders rather than God. And I, brothers and sisters, so it reads, and I, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as of infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to consume it. But even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are uh, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like ordinary people? For when one person says, I am with Paul, and another, I am with Apollos, are you not ordinary people? And then, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, the one who plants and the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So as we see, spiritual children tend to place more importance on relationships rather than doctrine. These Corinthian believers were only able to digest spiritual milk, easy truths and doctrine, rather than solid food, deeper doctrine because they were still fleshly, not at a point of spiritual maturity. Paul's letter to the Ephesians also gives us understanding about another characterization of those who are still children in the faith. And it ties into his address to the believers at Corinth. There's a lack of discernment when it comes to doctrine. Children can be deceived quite easily because of their minimal understanding. Ephesians 4.14 says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. What is scary is that some people may never leave this phase. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I gave you milk, but even now I still have to give you milk. He had anticipated growth by this point that they had not yet achieved. So it is important to recognize that these stages of spiritual growth do not directly coincide with age. You can be 60 years old, I know that's not that old, but 60 years old and still be a child. Okay? You may be wise in the world, 
but immaturing your faith. Sadly, it is not uncommon to see much older Christians, those who have spent their whole lives in the faith, be carried about by every wind of doctrine and be tossed here and there by the trickery of people. We see this in many churches in our own city. This is a stage that although beautiful, although beautiful because of its innocence, we need to grow out of as believers by learning and meditating on the Word of God. Now, just on the point, there is something beautiful about children and their ignorance and innocence. Right? And I say this in relation to my role as a father. Um, their helplessness and complete trust in Erica and I is something that is so special. Luckily, though, our intentions are pure, unlike false teachers who try to trick and scheme against God's elect. And luckily, we love our children. But rooted in our love is the knowledge that our children are ignorant and need to be instructed so that they can grow, most importantly, in the Lord. Now we will look at the second phase of spiritual growth. John refers to young men when recognizing the next step in sanctification. Verse 13 says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And in verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God remains in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John MacArthur will refer to young men as believers who know sound doctrine and the word, but who do not yet have the mature experience of knowing God in the word and through life. I would like to briefly look at the three characteristics that the Apostle John brings up about young men, that they are strong, that the word remains or abides in them, and that they have overcome the evil one, in order to gain a little more understanding. When you do further research into the word strong that John uses here, you see that in the biblical context it means of one who has strength of soul to sustain the attacks of Satan. So to be strong then is to stand firm against sin and error. And how do young men do this? By having the word of God in them, as John would say, in their hearts and in their minds. So I'd like to look at Ephesians 6, 10 to 17 to prove this point. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and in in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having won everything, sorry, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As believers, we can be assured that we will engage in spiritual warfare. The Bible is clear on this. So Paul is showing us how to equip ourselves in the passage and how to be strong against the enemy. If you notice, the one piece of armor that is used for the offensive attack is the sword. And what is the sword of the Spirit as identified here? The Word of God. God's word allows us to play both offense and defense when it comes to pitting battles against the enemy. 
A great cross-reference to this is the passage found in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not battle against, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How do we take every thought captive and destroy arguments and arrogance? By testing it and defeating it with God's word. It is the word of God abiding in us that allows us to overcome the evil one. John affirms this point later on in the epistle um, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 4. So in 4.4, 4, he says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And 5.4 says, For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And where does our faith come from? The triune God, each member playing a particular role. How do we come to faith? Through God's divine grace in our lives, which is displayed in our acceptance and acknowledgement of the gospel and Christ's redemptive work on the cross. How do we hear the gospel? Through the preaching of God's word. And how are we sustained? By his spirit. And so notice how it's all intertwined. The true beauty about scripture is that it is all intertwined. I can literally cross-reference the whole Bible in this short passage, but I'll leave that to Andrew because that's usually what he does. A very interesting point that John Calvin brings up in, the, in reference to this passage is that John's address of each phase of spiritual growth and the particular characteristic that defines each phase is meant also to address the main temptation of each stage. For children, it's to veer off, to be tossed around. They need direction. They need to know the Father. It's a call to obedience. Young men, to go back to the world, to become disheartened and feel weak. So they're called to be strong and to overcome the evil one. And fathers, to plateau and to become stagnant. Now, still on this point of being a spiritual young man, a perfect example in Scripture of someone who is doctrinally sound, but who seems to be growing weaker because of the pressures of the church and the rising persecution by the world is Timothy. We see this in 2 Timothy. Paul is very concerned with him. I'll quickly summarize um, some things that Paul brings up and why I think this is such a good example. He calls Timothy to kindle afresh his gift in, one, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Replace fear with power, love, and a sound mind in verse 7. Not to be ashamed of Paul and Christ, but willingly suffer for the gospel in verse 8. To hold on to truth in verses 13 and 14. And Paul also calls him to be strong in chapter 2, verse 1, and to continue to preach the word in chapter 4, verse 2. What he doesn't do is correct him on doctrine, which ties him perfectly with John's breakdown of what it means to be a young man on the spectrum of spiritual growth. He calls him to be strong, hold on to truth, and to continue to preach the word. Don't go back to where you once were, but kindle afresh your gift and continue to suffer and serve. Timothy is a great example of a young man on his way to becoming a spiritual father. And lastly, John makes reference to fathers. Verses 13 and then 14 again. I'm writing to you fathers because you know, who, you know him who has been from the beginning. 
On this particular stage of spiritual growth, I would like to look at what it means to know him, how to get to know him deeply, and what knowing him looks like. And what it means to know him, I'd like to bring us back to 1 John uh, 2, verse 3. It says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Those who truly know God or are obedient to his word. Those who love God keep his commandments, as John 14, 15 tells us. So again, to truly know him is to love him by being obedient to him. Now, how do we get to truly know him? The Bible is clear on how to truly and deeply get to know God and be in relationship with him. Deep knowledge of God comes through prayer, faithful study of his word, walking in obedience, which is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Getting to know God in obedience to his word should be ingrained in all aspects of our being. As difficult as this sounds, God has given us his spirit to help us, as John 14 tells us, and Jesus has given us a blueprint into some practices to adopt, and God through Moses has driven home this point in how we should be in constant reflection of him and his commands. In Matthew 6, after Jesus had given the standards of how we should live our lives as outlined by the law, He does go into how we should worship God daily by adopting what one of my favorite pastors, Jamin Roller, would call a righteous trellis in our lives. A trellis is a framework which supports and guides the growth of plants, mainly fruit trees or vines, such as grapes. In a book by Anthony Payne and Colin Marshall called The Trellis and the Vine, and as expanded upon by the pastor I was referencing before of Citizens Church in, in Texas, these men say that in, this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides a framework on how to build a righteous trellis in our lives in order to guide the organic work of the Spirit so that we may bear the fruit of the Spirit. This is done through three practices that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. Prayer, generosity, and fasting. By making these part of our everyday lives and rhythms of faith, we will have structure to our spiritual lives and the work of the Holy Spirit will surround it and bear much fruit. Now Moses in Deuteronomy 6 also shows us how we are to get to know him. He commands Israel to meditate and reflect upon his commands daily and in all matters of life so that obedience would not be some sort of moral legalism, but rather a response out of love and understanding. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is how we get to know God. By meditating on his words and his commands. By saturating ourselves in him and having his word imprinted on our hearts through oneness with the spirit. Psalm 119 verses 9 to 11. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. 
Keeping his word treasured in our hearts is what allows us to be obedient to him and helps us in our daily battle against sin. John has also given us some great insight in the previous verses exposited into what it looks like to be at this stage of spiritual father. So I picked out some points from um, just chunks of verses to help us understand um, who John is and what he's calling his disciples to be. Verses 1 to 4, what I chose out from there was the proclamation of the gospel and the fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. Verses 5 to 10, walking in the light and having fellowship with one another and acknowledgement and confession of sin. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, obedience and walking in the same manner as he walked. And verses 7 to 11, love for the brethren. Now, my last point, what does knowing him look like? Jesus sets the standard on what it looks like to be a spiritual father. To be Christ-like and to reflect the image of Christ is the ultimate sign of sanctification and what it means to be at the stage of being a spiritual father. To be Christ-like is the ultimate goal of the believer. This is who we all strive to look like through the power of the Spirit. And Paul emphasizes this point in many portions of Scripture, but we'll look at two. Philippians 3, 12 to 16. He says, Not that I have already grasped it all, or have already become perfect, but I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature, let's have this attitude. And if anything, you have to, a different attitude, God will reveal that to you as well. However, let's keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Perfection is Christ Jesus. As believers, this is what we, this is what Paul, this is what, this is who all godly men and women in scripture press forward to look like and emulate. And it is a process. Sanctification is a process and it happens gradually. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror to the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, or one degree of glory to the next, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So I want to take you back to grade 8 math class, um, where you use the protractor, right? If you look at 84 and 85 degrees, they look quite similar. But as you move forward from one degree of glory to the next, 84 and 156 degrees look drastically different. Sanctification is gradual, and it takes time. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, we press forward and are transformed. And this growth and transformation is not complete until, as Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature to which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Sanctification is a lifelong process that is only brought to completion in glory. 
Until then, by the power of the Spirit, we move forward and allow him to transform us little by little. Paul also gives us great insight in 2 Timothy chapter 2 into what being a spiritual father looks like. And this will be my last point for the day. In his encouragement and exhortations to Timothy, he calls Timothy his son, and he shows Timothy through his own life what it means to be a spiritual father. Suffer for the sake of the church and for God, verse, chapter 2, verse 3, as Paul did. Be a good soldier and move away from the things of the world, again, as Paul did in verse 4. Be as an athlete, train, endure, play by the rules, Ch- chapter 2, verse 5 just as Paul did. Be a hard-working farmer, sow seed, go to the field, and preach, in verse 6, just as Paul did. Paul knew how to be a spiritual father not only to Timothy, but to all of the churches and men and women that he discipled because of all the things that he did as a spiritual father, Christ did before him. He imitated Christ, and we need to strive to do the same. In conclusion, it is important to realize that all believers go through these three stages. But we must strive towards the prize of the upward calling to which we have been called, to be Christ-like. We must move past the ignorance when we are spiritual children by learning doctrine and being strong in the word. And we must allow the organic work of the Spirit to truly transform our hearts and lives into the image of Christ. That's how we become fathers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this portion of scripture. Um, You know, I think about how John opens up calling us little children. It's encouraging to know that most of us here in this place could probably see ourselves in one of those stages. But the beauty of it is that we know by pairing ourselves up against one of these stages that we are justified, that we are saved. And that is beautiful. To know that we are your little children, to know that we have been called by you, that we have been chosen by you, is something that we are undeserving of, but that we praise you every day for. We thank you for your sovereign grace. We thank you for your hand in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that this process of sanctification would be gradual, but we would be going from that one degree of glory to the next and not remain stagnant. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just continue to transform our heart and our minds and our lives, that we would glorify you in all that we do. So Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Again, I thank you for your word that we're able to reflect on it and meditate on it. And Lord, I pray that you would bring us all to that final stage of being spiritual fathers so that we can disciple the next generation of believers, those who you have called. In Jesus' name, amen.